want to build a road, but I need wood. <laughs> Do either of you fellas have wood? <laughs> I don't understand the laughter. <laughs> the object of settlers of Catan is to build roads and settlements. To do so requires wood. Now, I have sheep. I need wood. <laughs> Who has wood for my sheep? Money, Penny. Where's 007? He's on a mission, sir, in Austria. Well, tell him to pull out immediately. So does England. Welcome, dear listeners, to the podcast that asks, don't you miss the outside world? And questions which the answer is obviously for me. This is all the world. There is beauty, there is ugliness, and there is death. Yes, this is the Odd Job Pod. I am Gary Andrews. And if you haven't guessed um, or missed our last podcast, in this episode, we will be looking at Pete Roger, the spy who loved me. Uh, and joining me as ever are Terry DeFellin and Graham Sibley. Um, how are you chaps? Are you keeping Britain's end up? Sorry, yes, I, I don't think I, I can really come up with anything as as pithy and smutty as uh, as Roger could, but uh, it depends. If if, if I had a, a writer like Chris Wood, then I would probably be able to come up with something very, 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 very slick and uh, and yes, a bit ooer misses. Yeah, if you had uh, Chris Wood writing for us, then we would. This podcast would definitely be a lot smuttier than it actually is, <laughs> and a lot funnier to go with it. <laughs> would it be Confessions of a Podcasting Studio? <laughs> yes, yes, it would. <laughs> well, I mean, th- yeah, we, we have a tendency on this podcast to t- dive into the films that are perhaps less loved or not quite at the top of the canon. So this one, I think, is going to be a bit of a joy for all of us. If you've listened to our World Cup, you know um, how highly we rate The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, but Chris Wood seems like a good a place as any to dive in. Um to the spy who loved me and um he is the scriptwriter um on this and also on moonraker as well um and for, if you don't know confessions he also had a bit of a history with the confessions um series so terry i mean should we just start with this because we we've, we've started off with chris wood and it's quite clear that um there is a massive amount of wood throughout this script as well and um it really shows, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, Chris Wood is, uh, um, yeah, as you said, he's the author, he's the originator of the Confession series of novels. Um, he didn't write all of them, but he wrote a very, very sizable chunk of them, the early ones, and then switched publishers and switched pseudonyms. He did it all under pseudonyms uh, and then wrote um, them from a uh, female perspective as well about a female character. So, uh, And if you're unfamiliar with the Confessions uh, series of novels, um, this is what people did um, for porn back in the 70s when they didn't have the internet or porn. Um, and, and they are comedic, comic, erotic fiction. Uh, I guess think, you know, in the same, I mean, porn's a bit, it's not really accurate, is it? It's, it, it's there. Um, there, it's erotic fiction, very much in the mould of the Carry On movies. I'd say it's very saucy seaside postcard, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And it's a very, it's a, it is perhaps a uniquely British tradition of erotic comedy, um, and uh, it's a bit crass and it's very, very lowbrow. And Chris Wood wanted to be a literary writer, but he kept being paid shit tons of money to write these smutty, funny fiction. And so he just kept doing it um, and it kept him going for a very long time. Um, and, and, uh, and amidst all of that, he also wrote scripts. Um, and if uh, uh, particular American listeners might be interested in this as well, uh, you might remember a, a film called Remo Williams. And you, uh, I forget the exact name of the title, but it was an attempt to uh, kickstart a uh, American James Bond style uh, from 1985, I think. I can't remember the exact uh, year, but that was written by Chris Wood and it was directed by Guy Hamilton. Um, it didn't it wasn't a success, sadly. Um, um, and uh, but and then, of course, amidst all of that, 
Christopher Wood wrote two of the finest James Bond movies of all time. Uh, and, you know, the top two in anyone's sensible uh, Roger Moore, uh, James Bond ranking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we might we might touch on where it, where in in the second part of our, our massive woods discussion, um, because we can focus on Spy Who Loved Me. And um, yeah, the Moonraker one still to come. I think we're all still working ourselves up to that. But um, Graham, even though there is I mean, this has some some almost classic Roger Moore deliveries in it. It's probably where um, so much of it developed from. But it's also, I, I, when I was watching it again recently, it's actually also got moments of, of kind of pathos and seriousness. And like it does can shift tones quite significantly and does it quite well. And actually doesn't, we've talked before about Bond not losing, when Bond sort of stops taking itself seriously, it, it starts getting into slightly problematic territory. Um, but this one never go for me, never goes anywhere particularly near caper, which Bond has a tendency to do. And also, I don't know how you feel about it, but for, for me, it actually feels like there's a bit of gravitas to this film, albeit with the, the plot that sits behind it. But there's a bit of gravitas that actually um, isn't always present in a lot of more films. No, I think this is certainly one of the most action packed Roger films. It, it's certainly the one where you get to see him fight a lot more. Uh, he, he gets into quite a few scrapes in this one and actually gets himself in, in stuck in a, uh, some, some rather sticky situations. Um, obviously, you've got Jaws there, uh, who we will obviously go on at length over during this uh, podcast. Uh, but the fight scenes with him are are, are good. They they are. They, I, I think that's that, that's always one thing that that people find a bit jarring with with Roger Moore compared to to say other ones uh, to say other actors who have uh, who have ta taken the role is the fact that he's not your typical action man. It, even though he does get get into well, or his stunt double uh, Rocky gets into quite a few uh, uh, serious scrapes. Obviously, this. Uh, this film is uh, a completely removed away from the original novel. There is nothing in the novel apart from Jaws that survives. Uh, that he, he's the, he's the only character and the only plot point from it. It's quite quite, quite interesting what we what what we were saying in the build up about uh, about Christopher Wood, about him writing books from uh, a bawdy novels from a from a female perspective because. The, the original novel here was written from a female perspective. It was it was a, a real left turn from from uh, Fleming. Uh, wrote this one after Thunderball, so it was just after he he wrote he wrote that one and before the film started to 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 come out. Uh, and so it was. I, I don't think he was very very um, happy with it, but uh, and so he he only agreed for the name to be used. Uh, for for the film, so they really had a free reign to go anywhere with with, with this one, and well, they 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 took Jaws, which obviously was uh, I think for most people the most memorable thing out of the film, uh, probably next to the Lotus Esprit, uh, and and really could go anywhere with it. It wasn't just Christopher Wood writing this one. Uh, there was Richard uh, Maybaum, who was uh, who was been throughout the franchise, the Bond franchise. So there's always someone. He he was always there to to bring it back in. I think. I think that's where you see the balance there. With the two writers, you get actually a really good film because you got you've got a mix of of different Bond films here. And you're right that it does it does touch on pathos in certain places, but it never allows itself to get too crazy in, e in either direction it doesn't really just bog itself down in its own narrative and then it also doesn't let itself go completely ridiculous all right when he starts pulling apart the the uh the the telecoms van that that, that does start start to look a bit <laughs> a bit a bit caperish and, and the and the uh 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 the, the the music as they're in the the said ripped apart van going across the uh the desert is uh is is, is a bit sort of uh, Italian job, isn't it? Uh, but it's all part of it, and I think that's where where we said said the last film, uh, Man with the Golden Gun, didn't know what it wanted to be, and and it kept flipping around from from different things. 
the Spyro Love Me does the same thing, but it, it keeps it in a much more controlled, measured way. And and it, as such, it is. If you look at the component parts of 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 Man with the Golden Gun, you you would you couldn't see why one is so much better than the, than the other. But obviously, it is. You know, we always talk about things like being better than the sum of their parts, and that's what Spy Love Me is. And whereas Man with the Golden Gun is not anywhere near as good as the sum of its parts. Terry, do you think that some of, of it as well helps in terms of the Man with the Golden Gun is obviously <coughs> um, it, you, you've kind of you've got a nice concept there, which is Bond going up against his equal, but the the peril never really kind of feels particularly there, whereas. In the films on either side of it, like, okay, they, they, in Living That Die, they did black exploitation, but, you know, drug trade is something that, that was, you know, people understood. And then in, um, in Spine You Love Me, you've obviously got a very real threat of nuclear war, which was actually, you know, incredibly pertinent at the time. It's something that actually, it struck me watching it probably more than it has done because I was thinking about it a, a bit more, knowing we were going to do this. Um, it actually feels like if you were watching this in 1977, yes, it's a slightly far-fetched plot in as far as you've got an underwater lair and, and everything else, which obviously they had huge fun designing. But the, the key sort of peril driver actually wasn't wildly outlandish for the time it was written in. No, it plays into a, a very, very real political narrative that was going on at the time. And I mean, as a, a a, a youngster watching that movie, I I did suffer around that time at that time of my life, like a lot of kids uh, at that time, of a fear of nuclear war, and it was it, it did bring in some genuine peril, albeit uh, as you state a, a somewhat outlandish premise to to the idea. But yeah, the fear of mutually assured destruction was something that we all lived with um, at that time. Um, also, um, it was fortunate that it had um, jaws to fall back on because the, the shark scenes, Stromberg's, um, you know, when he murdered his assistant by feeding her to the shark, um, that played into the fact that obviously jaws was a smash hit only a couple of years earlier and it really set itself onto the kind of cultural psyche. Um, and so we were easily able to link to fear just by that one thing and that that really actually gave the movie a quite a nice shortcut which you didn't have to work too hard on to make that to make that happen you know, in, in terms of narrative in terms of, of of the set and production they certainly there are no cut corners in this movie everything is everything is on the screen um so yeah you i mean graham to, to return to graham's point or, or echo what graham says you know it had the capacity to give us you know moments of of suspense, but also the balance between the levity, the humour, and the suspense was worked worked really, really well. There were actually there are some deeply. I remember watching this when at the cinema and being frightened through this movie. It was the first Bond movie I'd ever seen at the at the pictures. I remember being terrified of Jaws, even in the comic moments. He was still a you know a scary, scary guy. And there was genuine tension and the humour kind of just lifted and provided some relief for a little while before, you know, the tension came again. It's mm. So, Graham, we talked about, um, you know, Man with the Golden Gun in our last episode, um, not and you've mentioned there not being some of its parts. What for you just came together to make this probably one of the best Bond movies of all time and almost certainly Roger Moore's best film? I think mainly because of it, it is very tightly scripted and it, it does manage to keep a, a a constant level of of interest there throughout. There is always something happening on the screen that is actually quite pertinent to 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 what's to what's going to come ahead, which you can't always say for a, a Bond film, especially a Roger film. Uh, Roger films d did have a tendency to just have a bunch of stuff that happened just because they were they were in a place that looked nice or, or they went past somewhere. Thought, oh yeah, <laughs> let's let's get some crocodiles in this film. Uh, so at least with this one, it, it does seem to 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 make sense as much as a Bond film can do as you go through it. 
Um, of course, there are some gratuitous action scenes in there, but why not? It's it's an action film, so yeah, it's a bond film. Yeah, so so uh, so you're you're allowed it, uh, and uh, for me as well, I uh, uh, as as a Bond fan, you keep seeing people in there as well who are from other Bond films. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, you usually do, there's usually one or two knocking around, but this one's got I think it's got about three in them. I think, oh. it's got, but obviously it's got two M's in it for a start. Yeah, and it's got General Gogol as yeah, well. Yeah, General Gogol, first uh, General Gogol. Uh, it's got her, so it's a Hillary Bray's in it as well. Uh, so it's 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 great, isn't it? It's I, I think I think there yeah I think uh, yeah George Baker I think uh, Robert Brown and uh, um, uh, was it Gogol there there was three three Water uh, was was were three three uh, actors there who played someone else in in another film and Shane Rimmer. Uh, who played the captain of the sub, who uh, also turns up in uh, Diamonds Are Forever and You Only Live Twice, albeit as a guy looking at, at a monitor, um, but uh, in, a, in a, a, a minor role in control room. <laughs> uh, and Shane Rimmer, of course, it would have been well known to British audiences because he was one of those um, US actors who lived in um, the UK and hoovered up like... Um, um, Ed Bishop and William Sylvester, who hoovered up all of the American roles in British <laughs> TV and films, because uh, back then it's worth bearing in mind that that this is in the golden age of British cinema as well, because the this is the the tax breaks um, that are uh, 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 that are, um, uh, the Labour government introduced that encouraged Hollywood studios to come over and set up. Um, uh, and, and, and investing the film industry here. And so, you know, you, but you had to employ a set number of US, of, of UK based, of British technicians and actors in your movies if you wanted to take advantage of, of the, uh, of the tax breaks. Uh, and I mean, this was very fortuitous because you had guys like Stan. You had obviously Stanley Kubrick, who was a, lived in the UK anyway, and was making these movies and made 2001, for example, off the back of that. Um, and this is an example of that. It's why John Barry couldn't do this gig because he wasn't based in the UK at the time. He wasn't paying tax in the UK at the time and he couldn't do the work. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting that they, that they go, well, we need a US sub commander. So, you know, you know, Ed Bishop, oh, no, I'm busy. Oh, William Sylvester, oh, a bit too old. Oh, here we go. We'll just get Shane Rimmer in to do it. And he was really <laughs> good. I really liked him. Um, why don't you just quickly touch on John Barry? Um, one thing that I really wanted to, to just sort of spend a minute on is the score on this, which one I think is is I genuinely love. But um, Terry, I was also struck as well how well this film, probably more so than any other Bond film, actually knows the value of when to stay silent because there are a lot of scenes that aren't scored where you would expect them to be. Um, and actually, that adds to the sense of the film overall, whereas I think a lesser film would probably, well, may well have put in a penny whistle. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, consider the, um, uh, if we, since we're making comparisons with Golden Gun, consider the excellent fight scene uh, in, um, in uh, the Belly Dancer's dressing room. Um, which is really dramatically scored by John Barry. And, it, bam, 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 bam. and then think about the rooftop fight in Egypt um, with between Sandor and, and Bond, where there's no score at all. And for me, I mean, it's a better location because it's a, it's a, it's Egypt and, you know, it's, it's, it's a dramatic location. It's a great place to have a fight. But it didn't need... Um, it didn't need to be scored because the backdrop was its and the and the coordination, the choreography of the fight was its own drama in of itself. And that's a, I mean, that's a great example, as you say, of that. I mean, it's disappointing from a music buff point of view, but I mean, there is an art in the composer deciding when to not score, uh, and it's a decision, and it requires skill and judgment to make that decision. Um, and Marvin Hamlish, an Oscar-winning composer this score got an oscar nomination as well as did the theme tune um you know showing his showing his judgment on how to serve a movie mm. and the the pacing of that movie is quite something and, and graham as terry kind of touched there as well um you've obviously got many stars within here but egypt is certainly one of the stars of, of this film and it's it's probably one of I think when we we've talked about thrilling cities, for me, this is is one of the best uses I think they've 
they've kind of had of foreign locations in and almost kind of felt like it, it harked back to a certain extent in style occasionally to from Russia with love, just because there were bits which actually felt like they had that had that element from there of just a bit of quiet and enjoying the scenery as to where they were at. Yeah, and I, I the whole sort of thing about going to uh, the 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 pyramids and and choosing that that sort of like like evening sort of presentation thing that whole scene where uh, where they they they're trying to meet uh, Fekesh and uh, uh, using the 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 backdrop there but also using the soundscape of the music that that the of and the voiceover there and using that as as to build up tension of it was 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 really well used and of course yes of course if you go to egypt use the 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 monuments that you've got there the uh the the sort of cat and mouse sequence with uh with with bond and jaws in in the in the ruins there going in a, in and out of the pillars where you've got jaws walking along the top of them that that that's that's really good. That's 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 a really key scene, and and of course, I I think that's one of the things that 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 has the the that gives you the um the visual imagery of 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 more and 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 of a lot of Bond actually, the, where he's walking around in 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 his tux when he really shouldn't be walking around in his tux. He's, he's it's in the middle of the day. He's he's outside and it's and he's in a very dusty area. But he's still looking immaculate and uh, carrying his his uh, Walther PPK around, swinging it around, brandishing it. I, in, in fact, this is the well, the listeners won't know this, but uh, my little my little uh, uh, plastic Roger who sits on my desk here is 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 from that scene. I'm I'm sure of it. Look, he's down down to to, to the flares. He's so 1977. He couldn't be more 1977. <laughs> yeah it's it's classic war and then obviously we've got the the other location and again like the thing terry that i like about this film as well and the locations felt like they're spot on sometimes you have a tendency of bond to, to float around just say just because you can or they've either got a bit of extra budget or or they're chucking something in but actually the slightly kind of paired back they weren't dashing around everywhere they spend time breathing and then you've got sardinia as well which which the car chase in in Sardinia is is a beautiful piece of cinema as well. Yes, absolutely. It does make a full use of its uh, of 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 the, the the lavish locations that it's sent to. I mean, as we probably alluded to, uh, well, we didn't probably. We definitely alluded to in our last podcast. Golden Gun was not a successful film, and it was not a good film. Um, but also, um, there were there were difficulties with Spy Who Loved Me, um, and. Obviously, Harry Saltzman had left the project. He'd been bought out. Cubby Broccoli was faced with quite a big challenge. And also, the initial direction he wants to go down, he wants to make it about Spectre. He wanted Strongberg to be Blofeld. Um, uh, uh, all of that got scuppered through legal things. And so, actually, the, the movie was was actually not hastily put together because it took a while for it to come along. But, I mean, it, it suffered some setbacks. And the easiest thing that could have happened is, is like they just took a tug at because they, they spent a ton of money on this film um, and they could have really got it badly wrong. But And one of those things would have, what ways of doing that would have been by just misjudging the usage of the backdrops around there and not taking full advantage. So the fight scene in Egypt at the, on the rooftop, which I referred to earlier, which is great because if, if you look around, you can actually see spectators from other buildings looking down on the set, on, on there because it is genuinely on location it's not a studio set there's people looking but watching it, it, it unfold and it's which is brilliant it's an, it, I, I love that part and as you say Gary the Sardinia I mean Sardinia I've never been to Sardinia I know Graham has um but it, and uh, it's a beautiful island and I would imagine Graham that it, it, it captures that that beauty really well Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to go there uh, just a couple of years ago, and, uh, and and yeah, it is it is a beautiful island, and uh, and uh, very different to the uh, to the Italian mainland, but the well, or distinct from the the the, the Italian mainland in its in, in its feeling. So let's talk about, um, we talked about the score being brilliant. We've talked about um, script being tight, the location. Let's talk about the main 
probably the main driver of this. And for me, Graham, one of the main reasons for this success of this film, and that's Barbara Back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she, look, she looks lovely in evening wear, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> she is... Um, I mean, we've we've not. It's probably going to be a while before we do a World Cup, but I would imagine she would come very high in a World Cup of, of Bond girls. But she is, she's she's. Um, <clears throat> I guess I think a welcome change from certainly from Britt Eklund's Merry Goodnight in the previous film, but also you know Jane Seymour's Solitaire as well. This is somebody who is is probably I think you'd say comes from a similar mindset in and um structures all the way back to pussy galore who is who is a very sort of strong independent minded female character and you've got the same in here and again like to me it feels like she she this is one of the rare films where you've got the female lead feels like bond's equal and and indeed she is because she is agent triple x and that plays really well within this film for me. Yeah, it does, and especially when she when she catches him out, like by 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 gassing him with with a or uh, neutralizing him with a with a her uh, cigarette. It's yeah, there there is this sort of interplay between the two, which is is actually done really well. Um, she's just such a terrible actress. <laughs> she, yeah. She's just so rubbish, but. Um, but given that, I mean, they don't really give her. They they don't really stretch her. She so so she doesn't have to stretch out too much. And uh, and of course, you could say, well, there she's she she she's meant to be Russian, speaking uh, speaking a foreign language. So you can you can ride that one out. And to, to be honest, I I it's only in the first few few, few scenes when I thought she, when I start thinking, oh god, she's a bit rubbish, isn't she? Really. After that, I don't care really. I just get carried <laughs> along with it. Um, uh, and 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 yes, when uh, when 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 her dress gets very wet at the end, uh, yeah, I, I I find her acting suddenly it it is it, mesmerising. Um, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, uh, and it always has been. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, she's a. Sorry, go. No, go on, go on. Sorry, <coughs> sorry. Yeah, as far as the character is concerned, yes, it, it is done uh, uh, very well. I mean, she she does she does provide a lot more than Mary Goodnight and uh, uh, and uh, Solitaire, but bloody hell, you didn't really have to try that hard to do that, though, did you? Really? Um, I, I, oh, if I was thinking, if if someone, if if an actual actress had been uh, playing play, play the role would this have really elevated it to, to something else and i'm not too sure because there is that that boardiness to it that sort of lends itself to 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 just not having like you, you couldn't have imagined Dinah rig playing that character could you really or 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 you know we, we should say we should say say now the the late great honor blackman uh it, yeah, I, th I think it, it, it for she she fitted the role perfectly. I think, and and so it helped the film along, and it just is it, all part of it, really. I and mean, I, I think we can, again, we see where this film is better than the sum of its parts, and I think that's that's actually something that I think really we we keep returning to. Well, I keep returning to as far as this film is concerned. I think you've got to look to the direction as well. Yes, yes. Perhaps there was an acknowledgement that Barbara Bach was, I mean, a beautiful woman, a very high-profile personality as well. Um, and, I mean, and but, but yes, in terms of acting, certainly quite limited. And so I think that they, they directed her and they confined, you know, the limits of the role, uh, as you say, Graham, you know, according to, uh, her the, the limitations of her of her ability of her craft uh, and 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 when you do and it just goes to show that when you do that it works absolutely fine it works absolutely fine uh, had they cast on a Blackman or, or Diana Rigg or or a, a, a great actress of of their day of the time in the role it would have altered the scope of the character and ambition of the character exactly. I think and therefore yeah. would have been a different movie and doesn't necessarily follow that it would have been a better movie. 
and, and to be to be honest, Terry, it feels a little bit like this is this is almost a reverse on Her Majesty's Secret Service, where they you obviously had Diana Rigg, who who was very much the actor who was and Telly Savalas obviously carrying that one through and and Lazen, you know, the crew knowing knowing how they had to play to Lazenby's weaknesses and and just as you did in, in this one here. And you have because they've got that knowledge and acknowledgement of, of the weaknesses, actually they've made it a stronger movie because of those weaknesses. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just Telly and Diana Rigg do an awful lot of the heavy, heavy lifting in, lifting in on the Majesty Secret Service, and Roger, you know, Roger does in um, the Spy Who Loved Me, and I mean, it, it works really, really well because you you get the you get the tension. There's a maturity in their 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 arc. I mean, it it it, it starts off with a kind of you know opposite numbers banter, competition, work together, double cross. You know, and then more working together, and then the the sudden betrayal, the switch, the switch around. You know, the sudden like, and and we're as the audience, I think we're all happy to go along with that story and get to the end of the movie and have that moment at the end of the movie where where Triple X, where Anya Masova has the opportunity to exact her revenge and then decides to fuck him instead. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I, I like as well, and you, Terry mentioned that the heavy lifting there, there are a few scenes as well where, and, and you know, people don't necessarily credit Roger Moore potentially with, with that much depth to his acting, but there's a couple of lines for me in this film. One where... Um, it's the references made when the, the the two spies meet at the bar and they're they're exchanging each other's back history and um and there, there's that line of yeah married once and then Roger it's a really sort of very understated piece where he's just like does not want to go there and it's something that I think in a in a slightly lesser actor could have been been done differently and also the the point where he acknowledges that he's killed her lover um. And just basically is, well, this is the game that we're in. And it, it's, it's, Roger is often seen as lightweight, but those two bits almost feel like they, they could have come from a different bond, such as potentially somebody like Dalton instead. Mm. I think, I think Roger's, um, uh, performance as James Bond has been massively misunderstood by me down the years. I've spent the last few years completely re-evaluating Roger Moore's preconceptions that I had from my teenage years about Roger Moore being a more of a funny guy, more of a clown, you know, more in terms of parody uh, uh, and then reassessing it and actually no, no, this, this was a, a people's criticism of Roger Moore was that he was like a character actor and he acted with his eyebrows and that he didn't have much r- r- diversity or range. And I don't, I mean, there's a lot in that. In fairness, he was often cast in very similar roles and didn't have many opportunities to show his range. But I mean, that didn't mean he wasn't capable of showing depth. Um, and you're right, the, the it's rare for a Bond movie to go back to old movies. But the the reference, I think, to Tracy and to his wife, I think was an important in the story because it established actually an intimacy between Anya and James between Bond and Amasova, and I think that that worked really, really well. And yeah, the the confrontation, you know, where 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 you know Bond admits to having killed her lover, and I mean, it's it's beautifully scripted, and the pace of it is brilliant. He he just walks up and down, and he stops and he thinks about what he's going to say. You know, he's thinking, I'm standing across from this woman who's a trained killer. She's a trained assassin. If she wanted to kill me right now, she probably could. I need to choose my next words very carefully. And it's artfully, artfully done. And Graham, I mean, when we look at um, Terry's mentions, obviously the the sort of exception of more as a clown, as a, as a clown who disarms a nuclear bomb, obviously. Let's not forget <laughs> that one as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, what was your kind of feeling towards Moore's performance in this one? Does it does it show him in a slightly? Does it play up to to every element that that Moore can have in his locker on this one? Well, certainly with the delivery of the uh, of the innuendos, uh, which Christopher Wood weaves perfectly. Uh, and so he's very comfortable with those, with those lives lines. But there's um, like the scene where he's looking for Fekish and uh, and he's being delayed by by the foil, 
and uh, uh, those there, there is a tension there, but it's not like he goes in Man with the Golden Gun when he starts just like slapping around a bit just to try try and get the information for her. It, it's all a bit more tense. Uh, and and of course we're, that's building up to to a, a nice fight scene. Even though like she, uh, I I don't know why she screams in the end. I, I don't know if she's working with uh, the, the 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 assassin or not. Whether I I that, that's never made clear. Don't mind. Action's about to happen. There's a fight soon. So so forget about it. Um, yeah, I I I'd go with 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 Terry, and I would say this is his best film in his own performance. Uh, not just what everyone else brings along to it. So he, he does provide a lot of the 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 focus. And if you think about it, that he's 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 going up against a, a mute henchman, uh, a pretty weak arch villain in in, in this. Uh, and you say Barbara Back, who who has her own lim, uh, limitations. I have to add, by the way, that that Barbara Back didn't actually expect to be the leading lady in this, and she was only cast about four days before they actually started shooting. So, uh, so actually, I, I don't. I, I, I want to say it's not entirely her fault that that things weren't uh, weren't, weren't brilliant as far as she was concerned. But uh, obviously, he is more the central focus than anyone in this film, as far as delivering the lines is concerned. It's interesting on, on that. There's a slight aside here. I was lucky enough several years ago through through work to actually have um, be actually get a chance to interview Debbie, Debbie Williams, who does the most of the casting on the Bond films. And she actually revealed that um, Eva Green was only cast at the very last minute in Casino Royale. They really were struggling because they knew Vespa had to be such a key character. And they were coming really, really close to filming without actually having... Um, having a Vespa in place, which I found absolutely fascinating. It's a, and yeah, she, she just, I can't remember how many actresses she said that she went through, but she just could not find the right person. And then when you watch that, then you can't think of anybody else other than no, Vespa because she's just absolutely That's perfect. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised it was extremely difficult because it, it is such a difficult role to fill. I mean, it, you have to be spot on. It, you're not you're not just going up against the what people's perception of the novel is, but you're going up up against every Bond girl that's ever come before. So you've got to be different. You've got to have that. Th- there's got to be that spark there that 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 defines you differently, even in a reboot from any every other woman that's come before. And especially when you've got big characters like Tracy as well formulated there, and you've got to think where does that fit between the two characters? Mm, yes. Definitely. Well, let's. Let's move on. Um, this is a side one. We could easily talk, go back and talk about Casino Royale <laughs> with that for many hours. But um, Terry, we've talked about the uh, the, the leads in there, and, and Graham mentioned it in terms of um, a weakish villain in in Stromberg. And um, well, um, Kurt Jurgens, I, I enjoy his performance. He actually doesn't have a huge amount of screen time. And when you look at the um, the villainy in here. Um, again, this is where I like The Spy Who Loved Me because it feels like a spy film, despite the slightly um, over-the-top piece of peril in there and, and what Stromberg is. But a lot of it is just trying to find out, and you've got these bad characters all the way through without necessarily having the sort of the hammed-up, played-up um um, you know, it, it's a bit more like from Russia with Love to a certain extent again, because you've got they're trying to follow the trail as opposed to being quite clear what's going on. And um, yes, we know who the bad guys are very early on, but Bond doesn't necessarily know that. And they, there can be a tendency with villains to kind of play themselves up a little bit and, and ham up in there. And Jürgen, um, Kurt Jürgens does have a, a, a fair bit of fun, I think, with it as well. But um, yeah, I've, I find the villains really interesting in this one because it's as much Jaws as, as it is actually um, uh, Stromberg in there. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right to say that uh, Kurt Jürgens is given very little screen time and not much to do. And he's only he's only on two sets, isn't he? He's in the Liparis briefly. Um, and then he's you know back in back in Atlantis, and that's really where he's from. I mean, they give him a lot to do in that time where he can just you know reinforce to the audience how evil he is. Like, like I said, feeding his secretary to the sharks, and you know blowing up you know, the, the guys who helped develop develop his radar tracking system, and you know and all of that. So we can see what a 
a, a resourceful um, and evil uh, person that he is. But I think that Jürgens delivers the role with a degree of understatement, which I think is, again, I think is uh, characteristic of the, uh, of the scope of the character. Um, I would suggest to you that initially, because they had intended this to be a Spectre movie and that Kurt Jürgens would probably, uh, if assuming he'd been cast at that point, would probably be playing Blofeld. Um, they had to do a fair amount of rewriting and, and, and maybe, you know, the, 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 the character of the main supervillain of, you know, Strombo's character wasn't really fully formed out, but there's just enough going on there for us to be able to buy and accept his hokey plan for, you know, his undersea world. Um, and it is a very, very hokey plan uh, <laughs> for his undersea world. Um, because we see the ruthlessness and the and, and, and his capacity for for savagery, um, and and that works and that does work well. When we talk about Moonraker, which effectively is really a, a just a, a, another version of Spy Who Loved Me and a remake of Spy Who Loved Me, and, and because you know the, the the plot's the same, I think that Drax has got given a lot more scope. For example, in the movie that that Kurt Jurgens didn't have, and, and an older actor, you know, playing an older character. And that all worked well. I mean, you could possibly argue that his death was unsatisfactory, but I'm not sure I would say that. But people have argued, I think, that his death was unsatisfactory. But also, just to say that it didn't help that Jaws had all the more of the screen time and was just far more effective as a villain. Just incredibly scary and and, and, and brutal villain, while at the same time capable of of, of genuine moments of of of, of of a comedy, which you Graham mentioned too earlier, specifically, I think the car chase when he emerges from the from the Italian bloke's jeet, <laughs> having crashed his Cortina, as he rushes himself down and walks off, is is a very funny moment. But I mean, here's is the guy who was literally biting the you know the uh, the jugulars of, of 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 his victims, you know, only a few minutes earlier, really horrific. Mm, I mean. Stromberg to me is an interesting one, um, and he does get some great lines. I, I, I do like the um, cancel the twenty million dollars. That's a, that's an absolutely fantastic line. But um, I think one thing that makes him work for me over Drax, and I know that we're going to go into a lot of Moonraker in in the next time that we meet. Um, but one thing I think actually I prefer Stromberg, even though he is one of the weaker villains, despite the fact he's, he's you know, it's still a great film, is that actually his slightly hokey, absurd plan kind of feels a bit more believable than Drax because Drax has so much screen time, whereas Jürgens plays Stromberg as a very much as a, an oddball recluse. And there's absolutely you know, no question about that. He is, he comes across as a bit weird all the way through. And, you know, Graham, you've mentioned bits where you just go, you just run with it. There's enough there that you accept and go, yeah, this guy seems like he is very much off on his own mind. And he is exactly the type of guy that you could see coming to this kind of conclusion because he clearly doesn't like other people very much. He's a very odd person whereas Drax I don't know it just feels it's a bit too hands up whereas Kurt Jurgens's understatement to me actually just about keeps it going together on this yeah I think uh, I think Stromberg is is a, a a villain for 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 lockdown times isn't he really he's, <laughs> he's obviously someone who likes to to separate himself off from from the rest of humanity um, <laughs> he would have no no difficulty socially isolating at all. <laughs> no, 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 not not at all. Uh, yeah, uh, th no, there there is because there is so much in this film. Uh, the the uh, Stromberg is almost an afterthought, really. It, it, uh, and and also you don't miss him. There, there is there, there is no no one comes out of watching this film and go, well, I, I wish that there'd been more Stromberg in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting as well because um you look at some of the comparisons and, and probably the the one that might well sort of be most in there because it is the 
it is a Blofeld film. You only live twice. You don't really see Donald Pleasance in, until the really the final third. He doesn't have a huge amount of screen time either. He's obviously fantastic and, and, and brilliant when he does appear on screen. But yeah, it's great. It's, it's interesting because it's actually you don't need to have a supervillain hogging the screen time all the time in a great Bond film. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, unless there's someone really good like like Telly Savalas, where where he's where you get to understand the villain and uh, and you get to see a bit more of of, of where where he's coming from, or or at least a, a glimpse of his insanity. Um, with 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 Stromberg, he's a person you don't really want to want want to find out about. He's he's someone that that you know his weird webby hands. You know they're 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 enough to put you off. But uh, uh, yeah, he, he's all you all you need to know is that the fact that yeah he's got some diabolical plan and he's got load of a whole of, a whole load of nuclear weapons and he knows how to 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 find you or a submarine. So he, he he's obviously a dangerous man and he needs to be to be taken out. I think there's a relevance to Strongberg t- today. I think that there's, you know, the, mm. the, the strong men who run our big tech companies now and have enormous power and huge wealth. I mean, billions of people with, their, with billions of dollars with their own money could send, you know, rockets into space, could do what would ordinarily be considered to be, you know, outlandish things. Now, obviously not as outlandish as building an undersea kingdom developing a radar tracking system, stealing nuclear weapons and holding the world to ransom. But still, people who dream big dreams and have what could possibly be characterized as character defects. Mm. You know, I mean, and our, our world is dominated by such men. Um, and so actually, you know, the days where there was a time when this film was dated. I think during the 90s and maybe the noughties, this movie was dated because it was just perhaps seen as being too outlandish. Actually, if you look at, at, at Strongberg, the character now, you, you could maybe make comparisons with nameless heads of massive tech companies who have you know, their own profile and persona. Um, that, you know, and and um, perhaps, although not necessarily as misanthropic or as, as, or, or as cosseted away, as Strongberg, but still have uh, eccentricities that they could probably do a lot of damage with, given how much wealth and power that they have, and the ability to do pretty much what they want. Can you know open up shops everywhere and do whatever they want, uh, and governments uh, you know can't do much to stop them at the moment. I mean, so actually, that's great breeding ground for a new type of of that type of Bond villain to resurface. And I think that that's what makes Spy Love Me a movie that's the, the, the modern Bond fans who perhaps haven't watched this movie too often um, should perhaps revisit. Well, interesting question, actually, and a slight tangent on here. Um, either of you feel free to, uh, to kind of answer on this one, but what then makes, given Terry's analysis, which I think is a really interesting one, what makes Stromberg work and somebody like Elliot Carver not work? Because he's cut from a similar cloth in, in, in that kind of sense. I think great question. Yeah, I think Elliot Carver is a bit he thing is with Stromberg Stromberg uh it is it, it predicts a type of villain. Whereas Carver is basically trying to find a villain that that existed about five years before the film came out. Uh, he's based on Robert Maxwell, already dead, mm. uh, and but not brave enough to go after after uh, Rupert Murdoch. That's that's the problem with Carver, and 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 also Carver is a, a, he is someone who gets too much screen time. When when yeah. if, if you want someone to be the if you want someone to be the unseen hand with webbed fingers, then you you do want him to turn up in the last third, or you might just want to have a little sprinkle of him throughout. Um, but yeah, um, mm. yeah. It, it, I mean, you can we can we can appreciate that analysis with uh, Stromberg because Stromberg is a metaphor, whereas uh, Carver is not. He's, uh, he's he's an attempt at satire or lampoon or or commentary, um, yeah. and it's it's it and and a, a dismal failure as well. Unfortunately, no reflection on the actor. Just a just a just a dismal character, uh, and uh, well. Partial reflection on the actor and his ridiculous ability to fail to use his mobile tablet, that whatever it was. I mean, the unconvincing tapping on there just, just 
like, sorry, I don't know why, but every time I see that, I go, you're not doing anything. You're just randomly hitting stuff. You're not, you know, you're not a, you're not a villain. Go away, father. You're not a villain. <laughs> yes, you don't have web hands. You're not. <laughs> yeah. You don't have a submarine in your hull, and we're not pleased to see you. And <laughs> um, so we've talked about all the stuff that we we love, and um, you know, I think it's it's clear we've all got a lot of love. Um, we've we've come into this not. Um, really, anybody disputing that this is is probably one of the best Bond films um, of all time. It's, it's, you know, I think we're unanimous in our agreement um, that this is Moore's best film. But, but Graham, is there any are there any problems if we want to be picky? What would you pick apart in this? Is you know, Bond films can be problematic. Is there problematic elements? What is is there anything about this that you'd go? Mm, just, just, you know, I wish they just had not necessarily gone there. Uh, I, I must admit, when I, I'm very much used now to watching Bond films with with the uh, with the ride through it filter on, so it, it is. Uh, and and really, this one doesn't really need it that much. I don't think anyway. Um, of course, this, this is a film that was that was made over forty years ago, so there are going to be things in it that don't that you wouldn't see in a film now nowadays. Uh, or some people that, that wouldn't put in a film nowadays because it wouldn't be uh, commercially viable. Uh, that's it. As a film that came out in 1977, I think it is. I think it's great, and and there is not a lot in it that I find stops me from thinking, "Oh God, uh, I really wish they didn't do that." That 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 is really. That's that's really weird. It's it's not like something like like Goldfinger, which 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 has that in there, and and has that that and and even if you go afterwards, there there are films that are afterwards in 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 the franchise that do make you wince a bit. Uh, and of, of course, you know, the, the there are things like the the sort of uh, slightly xenophobic uh, off off uh, yeah off color remarks and things, uh, and and the 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 the, the treatment of other cultures, but really, I mean, that, that uh, by nineteen seventy seven standards, those those are are very, 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 very tame. And and I I think yeah, if if you've got a problem with them, then yeah, you you've probably got a, pro a problem with Bond films. Full stop. So are they, any fans of Bond film can can watch this. I think at any time at any time and think yeah, this is one of the best ones. And this one is is part of the franchise that 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 helps us. Except all the all the other ones as well. <laughs> yeah, Terry. There's certainly nothing along the lines of um, two schoolgirls taking out a dojo in this one. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it does. It suffers with Orientalism. A lot of movies that are, that are made in Western Europe and in, in Hollywood have suffer from Orientalism when they decide to to, to go out to the Middle East and and out that way and the the portrayal of 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 egyptians as being rather shiftless and you know i mean it, it, and, and inevitably meeting a sticky end is all a bit sort of yeah i mean but i would suggest to you that there are worse examples it's not an excuse but there are certainly worse examples i recently did a podcast about raids of the lost ark which is pretty which is far worse uh, in that respect um and of course octopussy you know i mean the treatment of the indian people in in i mean there's there's a lot to unpack um with regards to that particularly with british at colonial attitudes towards the subcontinent and all that uh, but i i think that um you know if you're talking about the problematic elements to it i think it, it, it's, it probably comes up in the plus common because, column, and I think particularly because although Barbara Bach has her limitations as an actress, there's no arguing with the character. Um, there was a, always a feeling of consent, shall we say, about the relationship and and uh, between her and Bond, and you you uh, you never it didn't feel like a creepy relationship that they had. I mean, you can't say that about some uh, Roger Moore Bond movies. Yeah, we're going to come into that in Moonraker, aren't we? We've got we've got all that to come. Yeah, uh, good job we're not touching on for your eyes only here. Yeah, or a view to a kill. Um, 
but so it, it, it you know there were I, I mean and yeah I mean the, the that woman who gets shot in the back rather callously you know tossed aside by by James Bond is 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 pretty grim but in general you know this is a pretty solid movie where everybody is pretty much treated with a level of respect that you would you would expect you know given given the times with which it was made and I would say in that respect it, it holds up. I, the scene between uh, Roger Moore, between James Bond and and, and um, Stromberg, it's not a unfortunately it's the only only one of two scenes they have together, and you never I never got any chemistry between those two. I don't think that scene worked terribly well, um, and, and largely because it's just don't, I mean like Roger is not a convincing marine biologist, he's not even a convincing pretend marine biologist. I just think that that just scene doesn't work. Um, you know, um, and, and and yeah, maybe the final sequence when you know the final confrontation between the two, maybe that also doesn't have the same drama as it could have done because that I think those two lacked chemistry. Uh, so I mean, and you could maybe have a look at some plot holes if you wanted to, but it's a Bond film. But apart from <laughs> that, you know, this is a really really solid piece of movie. Mm. I, I must admit yeah. that it, the the end is probably the weakest part of the film, um, but. I, th- I think, and it, and it's weird when when you say that that uh, the, 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 that that about a film, but it still doesn't de- de- detract from it. Usually, a, a f- at the end of a film makes or breaks a film, but uh, but I, I think with, with in, in this occasion, you know what's going to happen, you know how it's going to, you know, you know how it's going to going to resolve. It has quite an inventive resolution, I suppose. Um, but with 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 this, you've got this. A big sort of um, set piece finish when really the the, the rest of the film uh, has been so sort of intricate, flipping around from 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 uh, characters' perspectives and there uh, and and you've got the, this whole arc of of the of the the two main characters and yet it all has to end up in a big spectacular finish, but really. It was ever thus for for a Bond film, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we just just before we kind of finish, I was going to well, we, we've got still probably a bit more in there, but I was just going to mention on the the demise. Um, it's uh, I've been actually sort of racking my brains, and I'm sure I'm kind of missing something, a few here, but it's not often that Bond just shoots the uh, main antagonist dead. I mean, this isn't even the case of somebody meeting his Waterloo by being crushed by a bust of Napoleon. <laughs> No, it's not, is it? It's got a, it, it, there's a, I mean, you, I think there'll be people who would appreciate that kind of uh, assassination, if you like, because it is perhaps a bit more authentically Fleming, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 the idea of, you know, just to actually just saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm just here to put a bullet in you and then I've got, you know, better things to do. Um, and, and, and so, yes, but you, you could, I, I think it just about works myself. Um, as a as as a way to do away with a with a pretty spec, with a, a bad guy who's had some pretty spectacular you know plans go awry and you'd have thought maybe a more spectacular demise might have been more fitting but actually the fact that it all just completely falls apart around him maybe there's some you know you know the, 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 it's fitting that he dies in such an you know frankly undignified manner um, you know clutching onto his plate of food and you know, uh, as 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 he falls to his death, and I mean, you know, it's, I think that that sort of like worked. Well. I mean, I think the elongated um, gun barrel under the table <laughs> that Stromberg had. I mean, one the exaggerated manner with which he then went to pull the trigger that was a bit unconvincing, and the fact that you know there was clearly a one second delay before it hit <laughs> its target gave Roger enough time to get out of the way. And if we'd seen that, I think if we'd seen that earlier in the movie being used then we might have gone then that actually might have worked a bit better a bit, a bit like you know when you know with the, the bridge over the piranhas and you only live twice you go well watch for the bridge there's a that bridge has got you know watch it collapses and there's like piranhas there and it's you, you don't get that with this but you know it it, it it just about works for me yeah i mean i think it's for all you know and there's not too many criticisms and and i think it's it's a sign that as graham said it's 40 years on and or over 40 years now and we are struggling to um 
40 years. Um, we're struggling. Yeah, it is just slightly. Um, we're struggling to actually um, find things to, to say kind of ban about it. So um, if somebody, God forbid, is listening to this podcast and it hasn't ever watched a spy, you love me. And, and I'm not sure why you'd be listening to this podcast if you haven't watched a spy, you love me, because you're just going to be sat here going, well, there's a lot of people clearly who've watched this film far too many times. Um, but, Graham, <laughs> like, if you're kind of going to sum this up as to why this is probably up there in uh, certainly top five, and as we've kind of established, probably top three as well of Bond films, what makes this film so great? Jaws, Wet Nelly, uh, <laughs> and just some cracking innuendo, I think. <laughs> Terry, yeah, yeah, uh, spectacular set piece. But all everything that Graham just said, plus spectacular set pieces, uh, one of the best stunts, the, one of the best pre-credit sequence, best cold yeah. opens of any oh, Bond yeah. franchise. And again, as we've said on numerous occasions in previous podcasts, the pre-credit sequence of the Bond movie sets the tone for the, what the Bond movie is going to be. And this one said, you're about to watch a really spectacular, epic James Bond film. The last film was shit. This one is going to be brilliant. Okay, and to to demonstrate that, we're gonna we're gonna this guy is now gonna jump off a cliff and open up a parachute that's made <laughs> as a Union Jack, and it's gonna be awesome. And then you've got Carly Simon's the bars of Carly Simon just boom 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 in there. Absolutely, what an intro to that movie, and it doesn't disappoint from then on. I mean, yeah, it has its lower intensity moment, not lower intensity. It has its less spectacular moments, but it's good. The balance between the fist fights and the massive car chases and helicopter destructions and 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 the final battle sequence, which. And that should be, it needs to be, I think, posted here that this was the debut of the 007 soundstage, um, the, the, the one, and they, which they still use to this day, the largest soundstage, I think, in, at the time in the world. When Ken Adam told Cubby Broccoli that he said, you can't reproduce the Liparus interior. There isn't a soundstage on the planet that can, that can do justice to the Liparus interior. And Cubby Broccoli said to Ken Adam, all right, then build one. And they spent with United Artists something like thirteen and a half million pounds to to build this, which was a lot of money in 1977, um, to build this 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 new um, uh, soundstage. And uh, Spy Who Loved Me is the first one of there, so it's it's a, it marks a spectacular first there. I mean, it is an epic film. I mean, it's got this fantastic battle scene which we've not talked about at all you know and it's got the the suspense in the nuclear weapons and oh my god it's just like everything going on in this film but it it all beautifully stitched together by a great narrative and as graham says some absolute just enough humor to balance it out and make this movie fun and exciting uh, and i mean it was a, a massive smash hit in 1977 when it came out uh, and it's a movie that still holds up today and looks beautiful, digitally restored on a big screen. So if you get the opportunity to watch it, do so. Um, I couldn't agree more on that. So um, we, we're obviously, um, well, this is this is part one of, of some big wood here. And in the next podcast, we will be going into that. But I'm going to ask Graham a leading question as we come in there is, why is this a better film than Moonraker? I think listeners will have to wait till next podcast for us to do to 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 tell you why Moonraker doesn't reach the stellar um, levels that that Spy Love Me does make, even though it does go to the stars. It does. Yes, it goes to stars, but it's not quite stellar. Yes, I too will reserve judgment um, on there, but I mean, I have answers to that question myself. But we'll we will we will wait until we do Moonraker and then we will we can do a little compare and contrast uh, then. But and exactly. it will be apparent to all concerned and in no way undermine our internal logic as to why Moonraker is a great film. You're not getting us out of this. See, you know what you don't let's just give it I can't speak completely from a colleague, but I'm pretty certain this is the same. We've been through the Moonraker is shit phase. We've been there. Yeah. And we've come out the other side. Yeah. Our arguments are 
impregnable. <laughs> as you and the listeners will discover. Yeah, have at us, Andrews. Have at us. <laughs> Look, you got out from me that I didn't think it was as bad as other some other Roger Moore films. What more do you want? You are emerging. Are you, you are emerging. Your wings have just started to come out of the chrysalis. <laughs> you are. Next, next time, <laughs> next time, listeners, you will see, you will see Gary's transformation. <laughs> Mothra-like, Mothra-like, it'll be, it'll, yes. be, it'll be spectacular, and we, we won't stop until until uh, Moonraker is ensconced number two in your top, in your in your rankings for James Bond uh, for Roger Moore James Bond films. <laughs> and it's only a matter of time. You 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 spare yourself a lot of pain if you just surrender straight away. <laughs> one of us. One of us. Then strap him down, and I'll get the rope out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this seems like an appropriate time for me to pull out. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was I. I if, if that hasn't whetted your appetite for the next pod, then I genuinely don't know what we'll do. It's going to be, yeah, this is tends to be a, po- a pod where we all broadly will agree and raise points and, and slightly agree with each other. But uh, the next pod covers Moonraker, the film which is a, a contention, a contentious point between us in here. So let's see, will I get through the uh, is Moonraker shit or not? question will i emerge the other side of full-fledged more or will our next pod essentially set itself up and then not really know where it goes much like quantum of solace we will find out very very soon and um, when we return and james bond will definitely return in moonraker and there are so many things that i think we're going to talk about um have you got your arguments sharpened gentlemen I can raise her. Years of hone and refinement. You haven't got a chance. <laughs> uh, mine no, is no, so no. sharp. I mean, I, I only ever take it out of its scabbard and I only put it back in once it's drawn blood. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, um, before we go into, before we will record um, the big, big wood parts two, um, all I will say is, listener, please let us know on social media why Spy Who Loved Me is a better film than Moonraker. Is I Have you got through that other side? Do you still need help in there? Can people help you here? There is a hotline that is available. It's generally the Odd Job Pod Twitter feed in there. And if you are needing Moonraker therapy, then uh, either of my esteemed colleagues will be on hand to provide it. It is at Odd Job Pod. Um, please do follow us. You can uh, like us on Facebook. And if you don't already subscribe, please do subscribe through uh, whichever is your chosen podcast subscriber of choice. And you know what? Now is as good a time as any to sit down and watch a lot of Bond films and everything that comes with it. Um, so it just remains for me to say thank you to uh, Graham and Terry for an, another stellar pod. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Gary. And uh, as I say, the odd job pod will return in Moonraker, and I bet you can't wait. And until then, best of British and goodbye. 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 Be right, mates. <laughs> <laughs> Wood. Come on! I just want wood. Why are you making it so hard?